Hello again, and welcome to a very special edition of the Intergalactic Railroad, podcast of the Biocosmist Immortalists and Last Train to Freedom. In this house, we believe that capitalism is an alien computer from the future, and personhood is an illusion. So please promote us without compensation, and support us for your own moral elevation, as tonight we will be going home to the roots of this program, to spend some of your time reading the works of other people, in a format of which they may or may not approve. You guessed it correctly if you immediately came to the conclusion that it is once again story time in the Zine Library. And without further ado, allow me to introduce to you, yourself, and your immediate surroundings, the insurgent Southwest, death, criminality, and militarization on the U.S.-Mexican border. Authored by Fatima Insolacion and originally published by AK Press in 2003 as part of a tome entitled Life During Wartime, Resisting Counterinsurgency. The writing itself, having been found on the streets of Tucson, and I being the reader, being an alien, I must accept any inconsistencies in pronunciation as the fault of a broken school system and bad parenting. Let's begin. Introduction The Sonoran Desert has become a remote outpost of death, a unique site of resistance, and a study in how military strategies are effectively used to create profit while maintaining social control. The militarization of the U.S.-Mexican border has caused a lot of suffering. Thousands of people have died trying to cross since the mid-90s. The exact number is not known, but according to the Coalición de Derechos Humanos, it is estimated that the remains of more than 6,000 men, women, and children have been recovered on the U.S.-Mexico border. Why these people died, where they did, does not make a lot of sense until one begins to trace the flow of capital. Many people think that the main purpose of border policy is to stop the flow of migration. It is not. The main purpose of border policy, and specifically counterinsurgency on the border, is to manage mixed status communities, both in the border regions and in the interior. Counterinsurgency in the Southwest expresses itself through an increase in internal controls, checkpoints, deputized police, and a vigilant citizenry. These controls are justified through the constructed crisis of the war on drugs, racism, and a myriad of fears about crime. The inward expansion of the border has been accomplished through a shift from civil to criminal law when dealing with undocumented populations and a careful balance of hard and soft controls as, as enacted by police, military, paramilitaries, nonprofits, and civilians.
Hard controls include imprisonment, deportation, torture, deprivation, assault, and death. Soft controls range from information gathering, reporting to state authorities, psychological operations, and ideological warfare. Counterinsurgency, which we'll be calling COIN, is present in internal controls, the blurring of police-military functions, and the focus on managing populations as well as territory. COIN seeks to make surveillance and control seem not only normal, but participatory. Folks, at this point, it would be just the kind thing to do to let you know that there's going to be some page-turning sounds. So, if you find this to be an unsatisfying noise, hold on tight. Border militarization and all its internal controls only function well because so many people accept the discursive parameters and categories they utilize. We have forgotten that the border is a man-made thing. It actually hasn't existed for all that long. Human hands, machinery, and greed put it up, and human hands could take it down. In order to resist it, we must examine the recent militarization, identify the economic forces that profit from it, understand the expansion of internal controls and our part in them, and ultimately deconstruct and destroy the ideological and categorical assumptions that allow these systems to function. Military Theory and border militarization. Neoliberalism was a major contributor to the border crisis, but the crisis wouldn't have occurred without the concurrent process of militarization. To understand the specific tactical and strategic underpinnings of border militarization, it is useful to examine the development of the Low Intensity Conflict Doctrine, or LIC. In The Militarization of the U.S.-Mexico Border, Timothy Dunn meticulously traces the rise of LIC doctrine from 1978 to 1992. He writes, the principal concern of LIC doctrine has been with countering revolution, especially in Central America during the 1980s, followed by a concern for maintaining social control in other unstable settings. Within those areas, there are three general focal points of LIC doctrine. One, an emphasis on internal rather than external defense of a nation. Two, an emphasis on controlling targeted civilian populations rather than territory. 
and three, the assumption by the military of police-like and other unconventional, typical non-military roles, along with the adoption of the of the police, along with the adoption by the police of military characteristics. <coughs> <coughs> These principles outline the militarization and control techniques implemented in the borderlands in the last few years. There is an emphasis on internal defense, but it is happening under the rhetoric of an external threat. Distinctions between police, military, and paramilitary are blurring. The police are being militarized, and the military is being in given increasing access to civilian populations. Police are partnering with community organizations to create quote-unquote community policing. Border Patrol utilized the legitimizing language of human rights, and large portions of the civilian population are being required to police one another through mandated reporting in the workplace. Equally important, the border is increasing in its infrastructural reach as it expands ever inwards. Some of this expansion, like the increase in checkpoints, is territorial, but the major force behind border expansion, like police deputization and participatory civilian vigilance, is psychological. This escalation is justified to the public by the quote-unquote drug war, the quote-unquote war on terror, and racial hysteria. These tactics were described also by Dunn. <clears throat> Among the notable features of these efforts was a heavy emphasis on surveillance activities involving the use of advanced military technology, the, the, the growing presence of law enforcement and military personnel, uh, the, the greatly expanded legal authority of the Border Patrol, and the ongoing stops, especially at checkpoints, requests for identification from persons of uh, foreign appearance searches and uh, deportations. These activities all help to uh, contain the Mexican origin population in the border region. The uh, cumulative effect of such efforts can be interpreted as preventative repression, and it is enacted to restrain the principal subordinate groups in a crucial region that was vulnerable to instability. <coughs> what has changed with COIN in contrast to LIC is the level of nuance in who is defined as an enemy. In the desert, all migrants are the enemy, and hard controls are common. Meanwhile, in urban spaces, some undocumented people fit into the category of enemy, and some don't. Soft controls become more important. This differentiation doesn't weaken social categories. It refines them. Coin theory on the border depends on distinguishing between categories of people who are deserving of leniency and those who are criminal. These distinctions, which underlay the liberal idea of humane border policy, may get some people a reprieve from hard controls like deportation, but they do not challenge the control regime. They are, in fact, an integral part of it. Disguising controls within the fabric of everyday life, 
and cloaking them in narratives of human rights and liberality is an important part of social management. Before we examine how the border has expanded inward, we need to look at the period of militarization that occurred in the 90s, as militarization was necessary precursor to internal expansion. Expansion of the border infrastructure. In the preface of Border Games, Peter Andreas describes two photos hanging in the Border Patrol headquarters in San Diego. The, uh, the first photograph, taken in the 1990s, shows a mangled chain-link fence and crowds of people milling about, seemingly oblivious that the border even exists. The Border Patrol was nowhere in sight. The image of it is a chaotic border that is defied, defeated, and undefended. And the second photo, taken a number of years later, shows a sturdy 10-foot-high metal wall, backed up by light posts and Border Patrol all-terrain vehicles, alertly monitoring the line. No people gather on either side. <laughs> this transformation occurred through a series of government operations that sealed the cities and pushed traffic into the geographically remote desert reason, regions. Operation Hold the Line in 1993 in El Paso slash Juarez. Operation Gatekeeper in 1994 in Southern California. Operation Safeguard in 1994 in Southern Arizona and Operation Rio Grande in 1997 in southeast Texas. The border wall expansion came with new strategies for enforcement that focused on sharpening the psychological burden of crossing. Beginning in 1994, Congress and the Border Patrol acted jointly to initiate a policy of prevention through deterrence, which would elevate the risk of apprehension to a level so high that pr prospective illegal entrance would consider it futile to enter the U.S. illegally. This policy changed the journey north. It did not make crossing futile, exactly, but it did make it more physically taxing, expensive, and dangerous. The militarization of the border created business opportunities for many players. After the traffic got pushed into the desert, the price of crossing increased considerably. U.S. economic and border policy created something of a captive market, and smuggling infrastructures expanded to accommodate the needs of the increasing numbers of crossers. Cartel consolidation brought with it an increase in violence. Stories of rape, assault, blackmail, and abandonment have become painful reminders of what happens when people are commodified. As a humanitarian aid volunteer, I have witnessed the trek through the desert increase in length and distance year by year as more checkpoints and patrols are put in place. Migrants are allowed to move slowly north through the desert for a few days, 
only to get picked up miles north as part of a sadistic game of experiential deterrence. The heat, exhaustion, and delirium of the desert are used as both a geographical and psychological barrier. Border Patrol officers like to say that they are out in the desert saving lives. I have had many agents on the ground over the past few years tell me this word for word, salvation from potential death in the desert is being used to justify low-intensity warfare, domination, and repression, which are, under liberal democracy, indignities to be suffered always for one's own good. If they are saving people, it is only from a labyrinth of potentially fatal ends that Border Patrol policy itself has created. People have only been dying in high numbers since militarization pushed migration out into the remote areas of the Sonoran Desert. Sonoran Desert. Border enforcement is a kind of tactical harassment meant to disorient and scatter groups of migrants. The practice of dusting those crossing is a good example. Border patrol helicopters buzz groups crossing the desert, hovering close overhead but not actually landing. This practice does not result in the physical custody of migrants, but it does cause people to scatter in all directions. People are separated, then, from their guides, and as a result, get lost in the huge geographic no-man's land. The practice of dusting is an intentional tactical warfare meant to make the process of crossing unpleasant. Those who are captured are then subject to dehumanizing abuse while in custody. To quote Culture of Cruelty, a report written from the direct experiences collected in Naco, Sonora. <clears throat> the abuses individuals report have remained alarmingly consistent for years. From interviewer to interviewer across interview sites, individuals suffering severe dehydration are deprived of water. People with life-threatening medical conditions are denied treatment. Children and adults are beaten during apprehensions and in custody. Family members are separated, their belongings confiscated, and not returned. Many are crammed into cells and subjected to extreme temperatures, deprived of sleep, and threatened with death by Border Patrol agents. Border policy functions to terrorize migrants. It doesn't actually seal the border. Whether Border Patrol enforcement takes this form because of incompetence or strategic intent is hard to prove one way or the other. It is more useful to talk about the functional realities of enforcement as opposed to what is meant to do. Memories of brutality don't go away. They may recede once people have made it north and settle back in family life. But the ever-present potential violence of state agents is not forgotten. Numerically ineffective but psychologically scarring border patrol enforcement serves industry's need for undocumented labor and makes the management of those populations easier by instilling fear and forcing people to live hidden lives.
saying that the border is everywhere used to be an emotive way to explain the ways we all internalize our indoctrination as citizens. It was a way to open conversations about the pragmatic advantages that come with citizenship, being able to move relatively freely, being allowed to be legally exploited in the labor market, being able to access what is left of the social welfare net being able to exist as a recognized entity in this society. These are the privileges of citizenship in the U.S., and they come at a terrible cost. The papers one person holds only have value because someone else is without them. The value of papers is based on created scarcity. Papers hold a manufactured worth and are effective tools of control because not everyone can obtain the right kind of documentation. Delineations always reinforce something. In this case, citizenship gives people something to spiritually hoard and rally around. It provides a false sense of community and security. These processes by which state and increasingly corporate interests are taken on through citizenship as one's own are an essential part of participatory control. The border is everywhere is not a metaphor anymore. It has become a reality and it functions because so many, many people accept the idea that the state should be allowed to police our communities through the arbitrary category of citizenship. The prison industry. In addition to creating a market for human smuggling and keeping a portion of the workforce frightened and exploitable, Militarization has also proved a boon to the private prison industry. The process has been driven by a shift towards the criminalization of status offenses. The move into criminal court can be seen in programs like Streamline. First implemented in Del Rio, Texas in 2005, Streamline is a zero-tolerance enforcement program designed to criminally prosecute unauthorized entrance by charging migrants in federal criminal court. Prior to Streamline, entry through non-official routes was dealt with mostly through civil immigration court, and the U.S. attorney prioritized repeat crossers and those with criminal records. Now, for all functional purposes, being undocumented is the actual crime. Even more common than prosecution through streamline is the charge of illegal re-entry, which is now almost one-fourth of all federal prosecutions and the most commonly filed federal charge. 
While programs like Streamline criminalize border crossers, charges like illegal reentry can be utilized anywhere in the country. The burden of proof is on the prosecution to prove that someone has tried to cross before and is once again in the country without proper documentation. Better records and database cross-checking has made proving illegal re-entry easier. Increased collaboration between different agencies is the main trend behind the expanding internal border. SB 1070 is a perfect example. SB 1070, the infamous Arizona law deputizing local police for immigration enforcement, has now gotten the court's go-ahead for implementation. The provision requires police to check immigration status while enforcing other laws if they have reasonable suspicion that someone is in the country illegally. In a way, SB 1070 is just a codification of business as usual in Arizona. SB 1070 is trying to do at a state level what local governments have been doing at a municipal level through 287G for a long time, according to the ICE website. The 287G program, one of ICE's top partnership initiatives, allows a state and local law enforcement entity to enter into a partnership with ICE under a joint memorandum of agreement, MOA in order to receive delegated authority for immigration enforcement within their jurisdiction. <coughs> In other words, law enforcement is deputized to check immigration status. Many of the 287G agreements are actually being phased out in favor of a new program called Secure Communities. Secure Communities runs the names of those booked into jails and prisons through the ICE database. According to ICE, Secure Communities is a simple and common sense way to carry out ICE's priorities. It uses an already existing federal information sharing partnership between ICE and the Federal Inf Bureau of Investigations that helps to identify criminal aliens without imposing new or additional requirements on state and local law enforcement. Under secure communities, the FBI automatically sends the fingerprints to ICE to check against its immigration databases. If these checks reveal that an individual is unlawfully present in the United States or otherwise removable due to a criminal conviction, ICE takes enforcement action. Once inmates are identified by secure communities, 
they are held past their sentence and transferred into ICE custody. The Obama administration would like to see secure communities go national by the end of 2013. Like 287G. Secure communities funnels people from jails into ICE detention. While Operation Streamline funnel people from ICE custody into the prison system. These agreements between state and municipal enforcement ensure that interactions with any level of law enforcement have the potential to lead to ICE detention, and ICE detention can easily parlay into a longer prison term. In this way, optimal use and maximum profit is extracted from each person arrested. The corporations that run private prisons are not only profiting from these laws, but help to write and pass them. The American Legislative Exchange Council, ALEC, offers a perfect example of how corporate and legislative interests work together to create criminalizing laws for profit. ALEC is a public-private legislative partnership made up of more than 2,000 state lawmakers, one-third of the nation's total legislatures, and more than 200 corporations and special interest groups. It represents Corrections Corporation of America, the largest private jailer in the U.S., the GEO Group, the second largest, and Sodexo Marriott which provides food services in private prisons. ALEC writes model legislation that benefits its corporate members. These model bills are then taken by ALEC's legislative members back to their states where they try to get them passed. ALEC produced a wave of tough sentencing laws in the 1990s. which increased the population of state prisons by half a million and increased the demand for private jails. These laws included mandatory minimum sentences, three strikes laws, and quote-unquote truth in sentencing limits on parole. Alec also wrote the template for SB 1070, Two-thirds of SB 1070's 36 sponsors were ALEC members, and 30 had received donations from the private prison industry. ALEC was one of the main mechanisms through which SB 1070 copycat laws spread throughout the country. ALEC has been an important player in the manufactured crisis of the drug war the criminalization of undocumented populations, and the expanded control net that feeds this profiteering. <sighs> Expanding the net. They're the ones who suffer and who catch on the air. They're the ones who 
Where could one realistically expect to be picked up and deported in Arizona? While crossing the border during a workplace raid, during a traffic stop, at any time really. Long before the advent of SB 1070, police have had discretion to enforce immigration and collude with border patrol within 100 miles of the border. Because of police discretion, any interaction with police can lead directly to deportation. The Border Patrol also routinely does police work that pulls over cars under the guise of enforcing traffic laws. This blurring of the lines between police and Border Patrol is in accordance with counterinsurgency and low-intensity conflict doctrine. Over the past few years, immigration enforcement has expanded well, well, well past this merging of duties to include people like social workers and hospital workers who are not traditionally considered to be part of the careful management of civilian populations. Our economic survival now depends on our willingness to police each other. HB 2008, which passed in Arizona in 2004, requires government employees to report to immigration authorities any undocumented immigrant who requests public assistance. Those who don't face up to four months in jail. Social workers in this context are no better than border patrol agents. People have had ICE called on them at the Department of Economic Security, even when applying for benefits for their documented children. Undocumented patients have been deported from Arizona hospitals after being deemed to be in a stable condition. State and border enforcement is becoming a part of everyone's job. How are people convinced to be enforcers? It happens through a series of manipulative narratives that provide alternative stories that people can tell themselves about their participation in controls. It involves convincing people that some kind of enforcement, like anti-trafficking raids, are ethical, even admirable. Creating Compliance Only thing we have to do is put it in our mind Only thing we have to do on April 5th of 2010, there was a raid in South Tucson. The Arizona Daily Star reported, uh, Immigration agents raided four shuttle companies on Tucson's south side Thursday morning as part of a major binational operation targeting an illegal immigrant smuggling network. Uh... Uh, officials mobilized more than 800 federal, state, and local law enforcement officers to arrest <coughs> 68 total people in <coughs> Tucson, <coughs> Phoenix, <coughs> Rio Rico, <coughs> Nogales, Arizona, and Nogales, Sonora. <coughs> 
the raids were portrayed in the local press as standard war on drugs, anti-trafficking enforcement. Federal, state, and local enforcement agents wearing balaclavas and carrying semi-automatic weapons went door-to-door -door asking for papers. People who were trying to report and witness the raid were interrogated and put into ICE vehicles. Teenagers were pulled off of city buses and homes were raided, sometimes without warrants. There was not adequate identification by law enforcement, and many people initially thought they were being robbed by masked gunmen. I've heard an account of two parents being forced to kneel at gunpoint in their homes as their children were told by a masked agent, say goodbye to mommy and daddy. The effect on the community was immediate and chilling. After the raid, people were afraid to pick their kids up from school, shop, or otherwise go about their daily lives. This state of terror was localized to Tucson's undocumented and mixed-status families. In most other parts of the city, life continued as normal, with little to no understanding of the increasing feelings of siege on the south side. The night before the raid, ICE went to local organizers looking to create a partnership focusing on human and drug trafficking. In that meeting, the community relations personnel, Rudy Bustamante, attempted to reach out to community leaders but didn't tell them about the raid planned for the next day. Community leaders received a tip later that evening, warning of the raid but did not put a wider alert out to the community for fear of creating mass panic. ICE's attempt to create good relations with community leaders by momentarily playing nice is not a new tactic. Distinctions between the law-abiding, deserving migrant and the criminal element are often used to manufacture support for ICE. When these distinctions are upheld by community organizers, Human rights activists, advocates, human rights advocates, and other social managers. They become a form of soft control. Soft and hard controls are not mutually exclusive. They should be viewed on a continuum. Liberal democracy in the United States relies on normalizing policing within certain communities and normalizing mass incarceration in order to maintain control and profit. It need not be a uniform process. In fact, it is better if it is not. Soft controls rely in some ways on keeping hard controls present but not too visible. Hard controls, like being murdered by the border patrol, are part of the implied threat and power of border enforcement for many communities in the Southwest. Border patrol agents have murdered 18 people, both U.S. and Mexican nationals, along the border since 2010. 
In order to assure these deaths are not viewed as cold-blooded murder, there is usually an attempt to associate those killed with the drug war and insinuating they were putting agents in extreme peril through rock-throwing or otherwise set them up as criminal elements. Criminality is usually presented as a choice or an innate characteristic. It is not usually considered to be a category imposed by the state, although that is the way that it functions. Being undocumented, being in transit, and not being white are enough to get you killed and frequently blamed for your own death in Arizona. If one has the misfortune of being murdered by the Border Patrol, somehow you deserved it, as good citizens never find themselves in the crosshairs of enforcement. Impunity to kill is in keeping with a military culture in which Border Patrol agents are fighting a dirty war. Guilty verdicts cannot bring justice in these cases. The legal system is designed to reify existing divisions and grant legitimacy to the armed wing of the state, not to rectify harms done. Mediation within a statist infrastructure cannot hold accountable perpetrators of violence because these same institutions are responsible for the terms of engagement and delineations which create, feed, and justify that violence. Simply pointing out state terror, however, is not enough. We must have a more nuanced understanding of power. Border enforcement is not simply an externally imposed occupation. It is a participatory process. In order to resist, we must recognize our compliance. Participatory soft controls. Only thing we have to do is put it in our mind. Only thing we have to do is put it in our mind. Hard controls like imprisonment and abuse in custody may be carried out by a relatively few. But soft controls are enacted by pretty much everyone. Every social worker who reports, every nurse who allows the transfer of a patient into border patrol custody, each person who drives past a police traffic stop without inquiring complies. So does every activist who reinforces deserving and undeserving categories, and every community organizer who agrees to work with ICE to fight trafficking. Inadvertent participation with low-intensity warfare is woven into the fabric of our daily lives. We have all found ourselves complicit at one point or another, out of ignorance, naivety, fear, or a sense of futility and despair. HB 2008 and SB 1070 have provisions that allow for the prosecution of citizens or municipal agents who fail to sufficiently enact them. The infrequency which, 
with which these provisions are actually utilized does not make them less effective. The potential consequences of dissent keep most people in line. Those who enact soft controls are themselves subject to hard controls. And rather than deal with the emotive conflict this brings up, many people choose to identify with border enforcement. Compliance and snitching are written into our job descriptions in sanitized ways, and bloody forms of control are hidden away and masked by disingenuous collective values, like justice, democracy, and peacekeeping. Yet as domination progresses, the cover for the ideological tenets of the system fall to the side if you know where to look. In Arizona, the iron fist of repression has become more apparent under the velvet glove of governance. The processes we have been seeing on the border are not exceptions to the rule. They are the rule. When there is wider recognition of the ways these systems of control work, soft controls are no longer so effective, and more explicit methods of social domination must be used. Resistance begins with the questioning of categories. The Business of Death One of the major narratives used to militarize the borderlands is that of the drug war. Jan Brewer, the governor of Arizona, insists, Well, we all know that the majority of the people that are coming to Arizona and trespassing are now becoming drug mules. They're coming across our borders in huge numbers. The drug cartels have taken control of the immigration, so they are criminals. They're breaking the law when they are trespassing, and they're criminals when they pack the marijuana and the drugs on their backs. <coughs> it doesn't really matter that this is a total fabrication. It's the emotional appeal that counts. Criminality and the drug war are used to justify hard controls and get people to participate in soft controls. A close examination of the history of U.S. drug policy and enforcement on the border shows us that the Border Patrol, Federales, and cartels should not necessarily be considered mutually exclusive entities. A lot of money is flowing south to shore up government and cartel interests and these interests are often exquisitely intertwined. An instructive example of the blurred lines between those on government and cartel payroll is offered by the case of Border Patrol agent Abel Canales. Canales was involved in the shooting of Jesus Enrique Castro Romo in, in November of 2010. Castro survived and is now suing over the incident. Canales was indicted in 2011 and accused of accepting a bribe in October of 2008. 
to allow vehicles with drugs and or undocumented migrants to pass the, to pass through the border patrol checkpoint on Interstate 19. This is not a case of a bad apple. This agent was in the field with a gun and all the associated immunity two years after investigators witnessed him taking bribes. These kinds of formal charges are only a shadow of the actual level of corruption taking place in the border region. Corruption itself, as a term, should be questioned, because something can only be a corruption in relation to a code of ethical behavior which is actually upheld. Collaboration between different state and border enforcers and cartel workers, police, and paramilitary happens with such frequency that it can be considered corruption only in the eyes of a misinformed public. In the 2009 book Drug War Zone, Frontline Dispatches from the Streets of El Paso and Juarez, Howard Campbell unpacks the term cartel. <clears throat> Transportation routes and territories controlled by specific cartels in collusion with the police, military, and government officials are known as plazas. Control of a plaza gives the drug lord and police commander of an area the power to charge less powerful traffickers tolls, known as pesos. Generally, one main cartel dominates a plaza at any given time, although this control is often contested or subverted by internal conflict, may be disputed among several groups and is subject to rapid change. Attempts by rival cartels to ship drugs through a plaza or take over a plaza controlled by their enemies have led to much of the recent violence in Mexico. The cartel that has the most power in a particular plaza receives police or military protections for its drug shipments. Authorities provide official documentation for loaded airplanes, freight trucks, and cars and allow traffickers to pass freely through airports and landing strips, freeway toll roads and desert highways, and checkpoints and border crossings. Typically, a cartel purchases the loyalty of the head of the federal police of a military commander in a particular district. This official provides officers or soldiers physically to physically protect drug loads in transit or in storage facilities, in some cases to serve as bodyguards to high-level cartel members. Police on the cartel payroll intimidate, kidnap, or murder opponents of the organization, although they may also extort large payments from the cartel with which they are associated. Additionally, cartel members establish relationships or connections with state governors or mayors of mayor major cities high-ranking officials in federal law enforcement, military and naval officers, and commanders and other powerful politicians and bureaucrats. These national connections facilitate the use of transportation routes and control of a given plaza. <clears throat> With this understanding of the ways that government officials and military agents in the U.S. and Mexico can serve double duty and work for the cartels. It becomes clear that the rigid lines drawn for the public are nothing but propagandist illusion, the one that is used to funnel a lot of money into Mexico. 
One of the ways that money is flowing into Mexico to fight the drug war is through the Merida Initi Initiative. The Merida Initiative is a security cooperation between the United States, Mexico, and Central America. The United States provides training, equipment, and intelligence to combat drug trafficking. According to the U.S. Department of State website, the four pillars of the Merida Initiative are 1. Disrupt organized criminal groups 2. Strengthen institutions 3. Build a 21st century border 4. Build strong and resilient communities These are accomplished to the tune of $1.6 billion since the Merida Initiative began in fiscal year 2008. How are Mexican institutions strengthened? According to the United States Department of State website, Mexican institutions are strengthened by the following. Uh, the United States is supporting Mexico's implementation of comprehensive justice sector reforms through the training of justice sector personnel, including police, prosecutors, and defenders, correction systems development, judicial exchanges, and uh, uh, partnerships between Mexican and U.S. law schools. <coughs> The U.S. Agency for International Development, USAID, is partnering with the government of Mexico and civil society to promote the rule of law and build strong and resilient communities by supporting the implementation of Mexico's new justice system, increasing knowledge of and respect for human rights, uh, strengthening social networks and community cohesion, addressing the needs of vulnerable populations, youth and victims of crime and so on, and uh, increasing community and uh, government cooperation and... Uh, <coughs> <coughs> this kind of partnering hides hard controls behind nation building. The U.S. has been widely criticized for training military and paramilitary forces in Mexico in the use of torture. In early July of 2008, a video came to light of the city police from Leon, Guanajuato being taught torture techniques by a U.S. security firm instructor. The training took place in April of 2006, and after the public outcry over the incident, the program was suspended. Torture tactics taught by U.S. security firms are used by police and military in Mexico, and yet more funding, training, and strengthening the rule of law is supposed to lead to less, not more, state violence. In an attempt to deflect criticisms that the Merida Initiative will necessarily engender more of the same abuse, it has a stipulation which requires Mexico to convince the U.S. Congress it is improving human rights standards and using some of the funds to overhaul the judicial system. Once again, a narrative of strengthening democracy and rights is being used to whitewash what is simply an outsourced version of the School of the Americas. Violence is justified just as often through anti-corruption, institution building, and human rights discourse as through more explicit narratives of war. How well does U.S.-led counterinsurgency training work? as far as shoring up the institution of Mexican democracy? 
The ascension of the Zeta Cartel provides a useful historical example. Los Zetas were founded in 1999 when commandos of the Mexican Army's elite force, trained by the U.S. Army's 7th Special Forces Group at Fort Bragg, the School of the Americas, deserted to work for the armed wing of the Gulf Cartel. The Vancouver Sun reported in February of 2010. Los Zetas broke away from the Gulf Cartel to form their own organization, attacking Gulf operatives wherever they found them and claiming the turf for themselves. The Gulf Cartel allied with their old Sinaloan rivals to fight back, engulfing the region in violence. Folks, don't we love it when our regions are engulfed in violence? <sighs> Such shifts in allegiance have to be understood in a context where the drug war is a business first and foremost. Commitments follow profit margins more than nation-state interests, and cartels, police, federales, military, and paramilitary roles can overlap, shift, and change with frequency. There is now a paramilitary group called the Mata Zetas whose only purported objective is to take out the Zeta cartel. This new development is being used to further support the idea that there is a narco-insurgency at hand. Ted Carpenter from the Cato Institute said, If you look at the tactics cartels are using, they resemble paramilitaries or insurgent groups rather than just criminal gangs. Writing for the Small Wars Journal, Dr. Robert J. Bunker and John P. Sullivan also see in this growing crisis the beginnings of a war over the socio-political integrity of Mexico. Our impression is that what is now taking place in Mexico has for some time gone way beyond secular and criminal economic activities as defined by traditional organized crime studies. Not only have de facto political elements come to the fore, i.e., when a cartel takes over an entire city or town, they have no choice but to take over political functions formally administered by the local government, but social narcocultura and religious and spiritual narcocultos characteristics are now for making themselves more pronounced. What we are likely witnessing is Mexican society starting to not only unravel, but to go to war with itself. Traditional Mexican values <laughs> and competing criminal value systems are engaged in a brutal contest over the hearts, minds, and souls of its citizens in a street-by-street, block-by-block, and city-by-city -city war over the future social and political organization of Mexico. <coughs> what this... What does this narco-insurgency narrative mean for policy? Narco-violence as a new ascending form of terrorism is being used to justify more border infrastructure, more agents on the ground, and more internal controls, more partnering with Mexico to fight against the cartels. Counterinsurgency is needed to fight the narco-insurgency which threatens the power of the state so skillfully because cartels like the Zetas were trained by the U.S. in counterinsurgency. Fighting the narco-insurgency is the perfect excuse for maintaining 
the narco-insurgency. Death to the border. The production of narco-insurgency and counter-insurgency shape daily life in the borderlands. They are used in subtle and not-so-subtle ways to make us afraid and to make us criminals. We should not be surprised that the military shapes border policy through low-intensity warfare, or that the state has identified some of us as enemies to be captured, deported, or killed. The entire infrastructure of the borderlands is designed to create unforgiving categories. Terms like documented, undocumented, humane, inhumane, legitimate, illegitimate, and criminal hide the functional purpose of the border, which is to divide, repress, and control. Democracies rely on the misrecognition of interest, calling it citizenship, cognitive dissonance of humane enforcement, and collective fiction of criminal justice to produce compliance. When it comes to the border, we are so often willing fools. Those who oppose states, corporations, and the profiteers of human misery should hold a healthy skepticism for all discourses which do not question the legitimacy of the state. Human rights rhetoric still positions nation-states as legitimate entities that must recognize the humanity of their subjects. These narratives reinforce state power. A good example of this is the call for a humane border policy. What border policy, given the state of late-stage capitalism, could ever be humane? The very real and meaningful concessions we win when we invoke a human rights narrative come at a cost. When we reinforce these narratives, we lose another opportunity to call the social contract into question. The predominant human rights frameworks do not question the basic assumption that is used to control us, that we have consented to be governed. Pragmatic coalition work with a wide variety of people, not all of whom are anti-statist, is a necessary part of resistance. That said, we must not confuse tactical coalitions with a passive acceptance of ideological tendencies, like the desire for a humane border. If we are not careful, statist logic can channel our passion and anger into border management instead of resistance. It hurts my heart to go to protests and listen to people plead for an expansion of citizenship. I don't judge anyone's desire for legal status or question the fear and hardship that comes with not having it. But someone is always going to find herself on the outside of those lines. There are no easy answers to these questions of strategy. They must be approached contextually, community by community. We must not shrink from hard conversations. Let's learn lessons from the security analysts and military theorists who write about border enforcement. The major issue at hand is that of legitimacy and the battle for legitimacy. History teaches us that nation-states and their boundaries can shatter. Do we believe that this empire too is beginning to crumble? Until there is a wider recognition of our own power to dismantle society, 
Everyone bound within this social cage is required and will continue to be coerced to police each other. Many will do this willingly. Those who refuse will be criminalized. The borderlands are a vision of the future, and at present it is not a nice vision. It is one of state and paramilitary violence, expanding police power, volatile racial exchanges, and mass incarceration. But there are other options. The border is a contested and ever-changing territory. It isn't under the total jurisdiction of any one group all the time. Military theorists are worried about legitimacy because it is produced through social narratives that are not absolute. In places like Arizona, the state is losing its mask of humane governance. The more people see methods of social control for what they are, and the more economically and ecologically unstable the world becomes, the more alternative visions of social organization and the struggles that might make them a reality will be given credence. There might not, at present, actually be an insurgency in the Southwest, but there are in many other parts of the world, and there could be here one day. Security is a huge industry because instability and resistance are real and have power. As the state loses legitimacy, some of its power will fall away. It may then try to hold on by using more extreme methods of control, or at least by using those already employed on a larger percentage of the population. To make it through the period of expanded control and repression we are entering, those of us invested in resistance must build our capacity to survive without the support services the state currently provides. The social safety net is not apolitical or benevolent. If it did not serve the state as a method of social control, it would not exist. As we are trying to resist state control over our lives, it would behoove us to try and limit our dependence on the state, or at least gain skills which will eventually be able to replace those services. We should do this both because participating in them gives the state power, and because we cannot access some state infrastructures, like hospitals and welfare offices without putting ourselves and our loved ones at risk. Now that we understand soft controls, we can build and seek out alternatives to those surveillance and control me mechanisms. Dealing with hard controls is more difficult, and the consequences are brutal. Let's start by calling dehumanization, repression, murder, and mass imprisonment what they are. The inevitable consequences of border enforcement. Resistance is happening on the border, and I encourage you to come and be a part of it. But the struggle is not just in the borderlands. As the border spreads inwards, other communities will need to come to an understanding of its mechanisms of control. There are no one-size-fits-all tactics or strategies. Each affected community must come up with its own response. As we contend with the realities of this growing zone of conflict, we must not forget that we have power to challenge those narratives that are used to control and repress us. Every time I see a sign proclaiming, we are not criminals, I cannot help but think, actually, we are. The heavy hand of the state comes down harder on some than others, and those distinctions play out along all kinds of categorical lines. 
But in a climate of political repression that punishes even the smallest acts of solidarity, all who resist are criminals. We are criminals, perversely complicit in our own imprisonment. The only silver lining is that we are all complicit in different ways, and so it follows that we are all able to resist in different ways. As I am in the habit of telling my kid, the border is both for real and for pretend. The border is fragile. We draw and redraw it every day. The consequences may be great, but we don't have to draw those lines. But just let it be na, 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 na. The world won't get no better We gotta change it now Just you and me Wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up.